This is a special edition of the RTI Press Pass powered by Rocky Top Insider. Here are your hosts, Jack Foster and Ryan Shumpert. Hello, everybody, and welcome back into the Rocky Top Insider Press Pass Special Edition Podcast. We haven't done this in a while, but we're going to be talking some Tennessee baseball today. I'm your host, Jack Foster, alongside Ryan Shumper. We're fresh off a Tennessee series sweep over the Texas A&M Aggies um, in Lindsey Nelson Stadium as Tennessee gets back to 500 in SEC play after a very, very poor start in Como. They come back home and sweep a ranked Aggies team. Ryan, this is just what you wanted for Tennessee's sake just after the way last weekend went. Yeah, I mean, you talk about bouncing back all the time in sports, and certainly Tennessee needed to bounce back from what was, like you said, a very bad weekend to start SEC play in Columbia, Missouri last weekend, and you you really can't bounce back any better than they did this weekend, or this week as a whole. You get uh, the shutout win on Tuesday night midweek play to kind of get back in the win column, and then obviously a lot more serious this weekend against Texas A&M where Tennessee went 3-0, and it was a series they really needed to win when you look at what's coming up on the schedule the next month, and uh, it was all the better to get a sweep instead of just a two out of three. Absolutely, and Tennessee got a pretty dominant win on Friday, 10-4, to um, biggest margin of victory over the weekend. Chase Dolander, a little rocky to start, which is frankly just going to be a regular thing, it looks like, for Chase Dolander in the first inning giving up a pair of runs, but Tennessee's offense comes to life in the bottom of the first plates, five, and then they go on to coast to the six-run win. Saturday, arguably the game of the year, an 8-7 to walk-off win with Jared Dickey's sack fly there in the bottom of the ninth, and then Sunday, which is today, they beat Texas A&M 9-6. It was a comfortable win. A&M got three runs late there in the ninth. Um, Tennessee's kind of just struggling to get out of there, if you will, but, but a pretty easy win for the Vols again on Sunday. So, Ryan, let's, let me get you your thoughts on, I know you just wrote an article on RockyTopInsider.com about your biggest takeaways from the weekend, uh, the Rocky Top Insider Baseball Notebook. So just your three biggest takeaways from this weekend to play. Yeah, I think number one, and this is pretty micro looking at things, but just Jared Dickey, the way they used him back. He started two, two out of three games behind the plate at catcher. He didn't finish there. Charlie Taylor came in and he moved to left field today once Tennessee got a pretty comfortable lead, but... You know, we really haven't seen him there much this season. Obviously, he was there a lot in the fall. He was there a little bit last year. And then after he had that hand injury, they kind of moved him to the outfield. But not only has he just been seeing some reps, just the fact of how sizable the number of reps he got this week, to me, is a pretty good indication that that is a move that's going to be here to stay. So to me, that was something that was really interesting. And then I think when you look at the – Weekend as a whole, the reason Tennessee had success, I mean, they won with offense, and that's not mm-hmm. something that I was really sure that they could do. It's They really hadn't beaten anybody worth anything this year coming into this weekend, but they hadn't done it, you know, beating anybody with, you know, offense when they had to. And, you know, obviously the, the game on Friday night, it was a six-run win, and Dolander kind of got into a groove after a rocky start, but it was a rocky start, and the offense was there right from the get-go in the first inning and the second inning to score runs and give Tennessee a lead. And then both of the last two games of the series, Tennessee really needed their offense to be good. Maybe didn't need it to be like elite today, um, but they needed every bit of it on Saturday in, in a game that was really a pitcher's park the way the wind was blowing in, and Tennessee was able to deliver. I think you got to give a, a lot of credit to a lot of different guys. Probably Zane Denton, the most notably, he had the best weekend at the plate. But more than anything, what was impressive about it to me is that they just got production 
from up and down its lineup. A lot of different guys contributed. A lot of different guys had good games. The Stars played well, but it wasn't like the Stars just had to, did like a backpack job or put up numbers. And it's like, well, you can't sustain right. that over a course of three, it was, four It wasn't weeks. like Blake Burke had 10 RBIs and a, you know, a few homers or anything like that. It was a group effort. Yeah, exactly. So I think doing that, even though it's not like a fantastic A&M pitching staff, to me, that was the most impressive part of this weekend. That's something that I think should give everybody that follows this team a lot of optimism that this team can have success. Uh more success than we thought maybe or maybe not more than we thought but more than they it looked like a week ago when they were 0 and 6 against you know competitive teams yeah i know i know we didn't podcast after the missouri series but the word i kept using was lifeless and yeah. tennessee's pitching you know i i wasn't hitting the panic button by any stretch of the imagination after their performance against the tigers but it wasn't good and then the offense was lifeless that was the word uh, I mean, Saturday they had a couple of home runs, but, I mean, four total hits uh, in the Friday and Sunday games combined. It, it's just not what you're used to seeing from a Tennessee baseball team over the past couple of seasons. But then this weekend it's a complete turnaround. And, you know, going back to that first game, after they score five in the bottom of the first there. You know, you, you see Texas A&M have a great top of the first, and you're like, okay, here we go again. Yeah. Tennessee's in a hole early. You know, they're struggling against SEC competition out of the gate here this weekend, but then they, they score five, and don't you think that helps Chase Dolander? I mean, I, it, he has bounced back a lot of times after poor starts this season, but that was probably the best we've seen Chase Dolander in the middle innings there Friday. Yeah, I think you're right, and Tony Vitello said something pretty similar yesterday about Chase Burns, or, you know, I asked a question about how big is it just for this offense to show you can win games this way, and he goes, I think it's pretty big for the pitching, just to not feel like they have to press, I think it's probably the right word, and have to be perfect, and I think you could see how that could be the case, and how the pitchers could be pressing this year, why they would be, and kind of the results, you could see that, yeah, that seems like something that could be happening, so you're right, that's huge, and that was kind of one of the other things I wrote about in the notebook, is just Tennessee's pitching to this point in the season, I backed it up, Tennessee's starting pitching to this point in the season has underachieved. It hasn't been terrible, but it hasn't been great. It hasn't been as good as we expected, and while that's something to watch for, I think in some ways that's kind of almost a positive that you take for coming out of these first two weekends of SEC play that, all right, you got back to 500. Your pitching, which is starting pitching, which is by far supposed to be the strength of this team, hasn't been it. It's not necessarily that I feel like it's not going to be it at some point, but it hasn't been it to that point or to this point. And I think Tennessee's ability to get back to 500 after a disastrous last weekend, it was pretty important to do that without the pitching being great. And I think it sets Tennessee up in a pretty good spot if they can get that pitching back to the way we know it's capable of being. Yeah, and it certainly hasn't been bad. And, you know, Dolander was fine Friday in those middle innings, as as I said, very good. And then Chase Burns, if you're talking about, you know, I know the start has a little bit of a, like a, you, you know, it's a little tampered now that it went awry for Chase Burns there in the sixth inning when that Texas A&M two-out rally that scored four runs there in the sixth. But Chase Burns had retired 12 straight up until that two-out rally in the sixth and 14 of his previ- of his last 15 at that point. So Chase Burns was dealing Saturday. And I think if we look at a pitcher, a starting pitcher for Tennessee of the three, that has been the most consistent this season, it is Chase Burns. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. I almost feel like Burns' start on Saturday was like a perfect microcosm for how he and Dolan have been this year. Okay. You have... 
He really makes one mistake in the first inning. First guy gets on base. That was a mistake by Blake Burke. Infield hit. If Blake Burke's playing on the base, that's an out. Yeah. He throws a two-strike fastball right down the middle. Gets punished to run homer. You mentioned it. Gets. I mean, was dominant in the middle. And then he gives up a hit, and things just get really shaky. And then you look up at the end, and he gives up five earned runs in five and two-thirds innings. And you're like, he was really good for a lot of his start, but the numbers just don't match that. And I think Dolander's had a handful of starts like that where – the numbers aren't as good as the way he's looked. Like he's looked elite. He's looked like the guy that's going to go top three for a good bit, you know, of his starts. But he hasn't had that consistency. So to me, I think you know, consistency is such a key word in sports, and certainly uh, with this Tennessee baseball team, it probably will be for a lot of the year. To me, that's what I'm looking for for those guys. You just need more consistency, especially a complete Burns. outing, if you will. Yeah, more uh, complete outings and. You know, at some point you can be like, that's kind of asking a lot. And both Burns and Dolander this weekend, and they've done it most starts this year where when they exited, Tennessee was in the game. And, and you know, Tony Vitello says it all the time. You've done your job if you do that. And that's great. And that's what I'm saying. They're not been bad, but he's <laughs> two consensus preseason first team All-Americans. The bar is really, really high. And you got to have complete starts. Doesn't have to be every time out. You got to be complete, but you got to be complete at, at a much higher rate than they have been to this point in the season. No, that's a good point, and yeah, I, I agree. The, the, you haven't seen a complete outing from either one of them, even though they've, you know, been peak Chase Dolander, peak Chase Burns at times during their, you know, certain outings, if you will. And I think we saw that this weekend. They just shut down yeah. the Aggies on Friday and Saturday in, you know, a three or four inning stretch for both of them. Then you move to Sunday. Drew Beam definitely a different type of outing, and Drew Beam's just not really had a memorable outing this year. It feels like it feels like most Sunday games have turned into a traditional college baseball Sunday game for Tennessee. When last year that didn't happen, Drew Beam, especially early on in the year, was going six, seven, eight innings, complete game, even um, one time there against Vanderbilt. But Drew Beam's just been a little bit different this year. He hasn't gotten shelled. He hasn't gotten rocked or anything. But he just he's just barely getting the job done. It feels like. He's kind of been like what I expected. You know, you you kind of go into season, you're like, all right, who is Drew Beam? Is he the guy that we saw for the first, you know, 60, 70% of last year? Or is what you said, deep outings, really, really good. We didn't, we felt pretty confident he wasn't the guy that he was the last month of the year when he was just getting shelled every single time he was out there. The truth was probably in the middle, and that's kind of where it's been. Yeah. He's been a guy that's filled up the strike zone. He has good stuff, not elite stuff, and, and you know, he's been hit. He hasn't looked flawless, I guess would be the better word, because of that, you know, and, and that's what Tennessee wants to do. They want him to throw strikes, and he's done that, and he's been pretty solid, and like you said, it's looked like a lot of Sunday baseball games look across the country, and I think that's what Drew Beam is right now. He's a what is a really good Sunday starter. You feel like he's not going to get rocked. He's going to get you to the middle of the game, but he's just not perfect. He's not the elite guy we saw at the start of last year, and I would say, really, he's probably been the most consistent of Tennessee's starting pitchers so far this year. Yeah, as far as his outings make sense. You know, yes. it's like, it, it's uniform throughout. You know what you're going to, you feel like you know what you're going to get when Drew Beam comes or is starting a game on Sunday. And, and to this point in the season, I, I feel like he's stayed pretty true to that. Well, what's funny about Drew Beam is I believe he only has given up eight earned runs this season, but he's given up 14 total runs. So, yeah, 14 runs, eight earned runs, I believe is the stat. So, Tennessee's defense has just not been playing that well on Drew Beam starts. And I don't know if this has anything to do with it. You can, you know, tell me if you think it does, but the two Drew Beam starts have happened on game two of doubleheaders. Yeah. You know, against Moorhead State and then Missouri last week. Uh, that didn't happen this weekend. But yeah, it, ju it just feels like the games are kind of sloppy defensively. And Tony Vitello even said today maybe Drew Beam stays in a little more if 
there's less defensive mistakes. Yeah, you're right, and that's a good a good point about the two doubleheader starts, and certainly the Missouri one stands out the most from bad defense behind him, and some of that was him playing bad defense yeah, as well. I mean, he had a throw, yeah, right. yeah, he had a throwing error to cost Tennessee, <laughs> but you're you're right, and uh, even today, like where it doesn't, what did he give up? One, two and three, two earned two, runs on yeah. three runs, yeah. Well, twice he has a wild pitch, one of them. And it was a wild pitch, but it was a ball that you would want your catcher to stop. And then later, a pass ball, which comes in and a does a good job of getting sacrifice flies. Both those plays allowed a runner to get to third with less than two outs, sacrifice fly to get him in. And obviously, the pass ball is the unearned run there. Right. Uh, but, and you, but I could have... I thought the first one, the wild pitch, was going to be a pass ball. I was waiting for that ruling, but I, I guess it was a wild. It was low and Yeah, just it, hit, hit, the, it hit the ground first. Yeah. But again, it's like Connor Pavloni's back there, like you're disappointed if Connor Pavloni doesn't make that play. And certainly the last two years, Tennessee hasn't had defensive catching to that level. And it was Jared Dickey back there today who's still trying to figure some things out and get in a groove as he's kind of, I wouldn't use the phrase thrown into a fire, but it's kind of like rapid sell. All right, we need you now. We were, we were, be ready. We might need you at catcher. All right, we need you at catcher. It's full, full go. So he's still figuring some things out and trying to get back into a rhythm with it all. But uh, you're right. It, it beam wasn't perfect today. But even then, the defense, some of those small things uh, that sometimes don't come back to bite you kind of did come back to bite you and come back to bite Beam and, and kind of credit to Texas A&M for some good situational baseball too. Yeah, and I, I think Jared Dickey is something we definitely have to talk about in depth on this podcast, and we will go ahead and do that. So Jared Dickey got three innings at catcher on Tuesday against Western Carolina, pretty much out of nowhere. Um, there are six, seventh, and eighth innings he played behind the plate. And then he gets the start on Friday. After the game, he said that Tuesday was a little bit of a surprise. He, he didn't think that was in the cards, but, you know, he did it. And then Wednesday, he kind of, you know, there was discussions about him starting Friday, and then it, was, came, it became official on Friday. Not necessarily a last-minute call or anything, but it was one that was made Friday for him to start at catcher. And then he starts again on Sunday. Shorter outing, though, as Charlie Taylor replaced him, what was it, sixth or seventh inning? Yeah, So sometime in the middle of the game. So, yeah, Jared Dickey and... There was a lot of miscommunication going on in the first inning Friday um, between Jared Dickey and Chase Dolander. Dickey didn't know Dolander wasn't wearing the the band um, that they that Tennessee pitchers have been using to call games. Um, so they just had to do it old school. Dolander, Dickey did. And it took a while to get used to. There was a couple pitch clock violations there in the first inning. Um, one that event, that walked a batter. It was ball four. So they had to work through that, but then it then it, then they got into a rhythm, and then today didn't really see anything that bad outside of those that pass ball. So, just your thoughts on how Jared Dickey has caught so far, and you said this is uh, something that you expect to see a lot in the future. Yeah, I do, and I was just listening to the radio traveling back to Knoxville on Friday, so I don't you know have as much of vantage point of how he performed there. You know, I thought he was solid today. I, I kind of liked what Tony Vitella said, where he's just, he's kind of just trying to do too, a little bit too much. Like, just play within yourself, be within yourself. Don't try to throw it 100 miles per hour down to second base. Uh, so he hasn't been great behind the plate. I don't think he's been bad necessarily, especially when you consider, like you said, it kind of has been a bit of a surprise and somewhat sudden for him to be in this role. And uh, I guess to, you know, what you teased me for there at the end about, me thinking it's going to be serious. I mean, it's one, it's because of how out of someone out of left field it came and that he has now in three of the last four games been behind the plate for at least a third of the game. And you look at it, Charlie Taylor, 
after some, you know, a little bit bat looked a little bit better early in the season, and he did have a hit today. He's kind of looked more like the guy we saw last year. He struggled. And then Cal Stark, I think, at the plate has not been as good as I expected him to be, and especially, again, kind of after you take out that first weekend, those first, you know, six, seven games when he was really good, he hasn't been quite as good as I expected him to be. And I just don't think that the drop-off from Stark to Dickey defensively is massive, maybe as big as some people think. I mean, Charlie Taylor is definitely the best one defensively. but Right. No, I feel what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then to me, I think to, the best sign that this is going to be something – Long term was the fact that Cal Stark started today at designated hitter. Yeah, Cal Stark was a designated hitter. Jared Dickey was that catcher. If you yeah. are just trying to get your best bats in the lineup, if it's not about getting Jared Dickey as many reps a catcher to get, be a guy that plays there a lot going forward, then that's probably flip flopped. And there's some other things that go into it. Cal Stark got pinch hit for two at bats into the game. Uh, you obviously can't go from designated hitter to catcher, so it gives you a little bit less flexibility because you know Dickey's going to stay in there the whole game with his bat. But for the most part, I still think what I just said. If Dickey, they weren't very serious about Dickey uh, being a catcher going forward, he would have been a DH today and Cal Stark would have been a catcher. No, that's a great point. Yeah, I, I agree with you on the defensive drop-off. I do not. And, I mean, let's look at it from this way. Jared Dickey has probably caught Dolander Burns and B more than Stark. He probably has more experience with that because he caught in the fall until he got hurt. And then he was, you know, third string catcher, if you will, last year. And he started three games. So he he has a lot of familiarity with those guys. Yeah. And I think that certainly plays a factor. Um, the other thing I want to talk about was I don't think that in this gauntlet of SEC play, especially coming up, that Tony Vitello is going to want Charlie Taylor and Christian Scott at the bottom of every lineup. And I think you're going to want Christian Scott in the lineup because how great he's been defensively, and it's not like it's anything new. We knew what he's capable of, but I think if you're going to take your lumps at either center, right field, or catcher, as far as at the plate goes, I'm going to take it with Christian Scott because I want I would rather have Christian Scott's bat in the lineup, which is better than Charlie Taylor's has been this year, his elite defense in the outfield, and then have the defensive drop-off at catcher with Jared Dickey. I think Dickey and Scott is better than the alternative is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, I think that's certainly Dickey's a better bat mm-hmm. than what you're going to get at center field, whether that's Hunter Inslee or Kyle Booker or it could be Jared Dickey in center field. I think it kind of almost depends on where you're playing too. Like you look at, at Lindsey Nelson Stadium, I think you can get away a lot with not having someone elite in center field just because it's a small park. And But when you go on the road – I think you need to make that sacrifice to be good defensively in the outfield. And that's what you're going to have next week at LSU. That's what you're going to have in two weeks at Arkansas. And you look at it, obviously Tennessee just hasn't played good baseball in those two weekends, but the two times they've been on the road in Missouri and in an opening weekend in Arizona, defense in center field was a major weakness, like glaring. The lack of speed Tennessee had was glaring in center field both of those two series. So I think you're right, uh, and I 100% agree with your the crux of your, your point. You have probably the two most – at least two of the three most important defensive positions are question marks for Tennessee. And you have good hitting options and you have good defensive options. You kind of need to go one and one there in most games. And I, I think you're right for the most part. Your ceiling, at least, I think is higher with Jared Dickey behind the plate and then Christian Scott or whoever else you want to name out in the center field. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And, it, you know, Christian Scott has become a vocal leader for the team too and it, he probably was last year too but Tony Vitello he's asked he's been asked three times I think you know you, you lost a lot of leaders who who are those guys that are stepping in those shoes this year he's 
just said Camden Sewell and Christian Scott. So, you know, Christian Scott has done his fair share of earning those opportunities as well. He's stuck with it. And, you know, just as long as he stays fairly consistent at the plate, I think we'll continue to see C. Scott in the lineup moving forward. And a guy that I think we're going to maybe has earned himself a mainstay in Tennessee's lineup for the time being and moving forward is Hunter Inslee. This is not a guy we talked about a lot preseason. Redshirt freshman coming in. um, Thought a lot of those true freshmen were going to get opportunities over him. Kyle Booker, stuff like that. But just hasn't happened. Hunter Inslee, a good defender, and he has been a very, very solid bat for Tennessee. Started all three games this weekend. Yeah, I think solid's like the right word. He just feels solid out there. He doesn't do a lot of things spectacular, but he's like, I can't think of one time this year, and you've been there more than me as I've been at a lot of basketball stuff. I can't think of one time this year I've been like, man, what's Hunter Inslee doing? Or man, Hunter Inslee, he's a black hole in this lineup today. It just hasn't been the case. He's been really solid at the plate. He's been solid defensively. I still think, again, there's, there's not really a true center fielder on this team, so it's been a learning process for him, a learning curve for him to – get more experience, get more comfortable at center field. But to me, it seems like he's played pretty well there when he's got his opportunities. And he's been good at the plate even today when he had to lay down a bunt. Boom, first first attempt, gets it down, moves the runners over. So he's just been on a team that in a lot of ways, just their issues have been that they're just not solid, whether that's running the bases or defensively or doing the little things well. He just seems good at all of that stuff. And while he's not spectacular, he may not – make some spectacular diving catch, hit a ball 440 feet for a home run. There is, in baseball and specifically on this Tennessee team, there is plenty of room for guys that are just good and do their job and are solid. And that's that's what Hunter Ensley's been to this point in the season. And he delivered in one of the biggest moments of the weekend. He did. Down 4-7, to Simo had done a great job of working himself from third after a um, one-out single there in the bottom of the seventh. Tennessee was trailing 4-7. to And then Ensley hits the uh, RBI single to left field. I mean, that... That started it for Tennessee. That started the comeback, and then Jared Dickey took care of the rest, but Inslee started it. It did, and it it felt like a huge moment for him because he's in the cleanup spot for, I believe, the first time all season, and he kind of looked like he was a little pressing. Like, all those things I said about him being solid, he was looked like he was trying to do a little too much his first two times up, or maybe he was even first three times up. I know he struck out his first two times. I can't remember if this was his third or fourth at bat. Probably his third at bat by what inning it was, and... In a huge moment. Like, it felt like that was a turning point in the game, one way or the other. Yeah, it's two outs. This is it. Yes, yeah. and you're this is the top of your order right into this, and he delivers a huge hit, and then obviously Jared Dickey uh, delivers an even bigger one uh, the next at-bat, but that's not possible if it's not for Hunter Inslee getting on base and uh, just putting the ball in play, and, and good things happened. You look back on this season, you, you need to. we need to trademark that Jared Dickey triple as the wind triple. The wind triple. The wind triple because, wow, that's one of the craziest things I've ever seen watching a baseball game. And I haven't seen a whole lot of baseball in my lifetime, definitely a ton in the last two years, but I've been to my fair share of uh, pro games as well, and, man, I've never seen anything like that. No, I, I not to that degree. I mean, it was – it kind of reminded me – obviously it was a lot different, but – in some ways, it was kind of like the Vanderbilt play last year on Friday night where the Vanderbilt guy, I, can't, I think Jordan Beck maybe hit it uh, out to right field, and maybe it's Trey Lipscomb. And the uh, Vanderbilt guy is, like, backing up to the, the fence. It gets caught in the light. And it gets caught in the light, yeah. and it lands, like, 30 feet in front of him. Yeah. Now, this play was – it made a lot more sense. I mean, you hit it off – you hear it hit off the bat, and it's like, that's a no-doubt home run. Well, I think it was 104 exit velo, and he – just hit it so high in the air and right into that wind from right field. And uh, Texas A&M right fielder goes back to the wall, 
He's kind of planted under it. Then he starts sprinting in He's about crap. <laughs> about thirty feet, twenty five feet, and then has to make it. Tries to make a diving catch and doesn't make it, and then it gets past him, and it's a triple. So yeah, you're right. It it was a an absolutely wild play, and it was different, a lot more excusable than that Vanderbilt play last year. But that was kind of the play it reminded me of watching it. No, that's a good yeah, that's a good comparison because it's just hard to really describe and you know just wrap your brain around it. But yeah, I wonder what the right fielder was thinking in that moment when he got to the warning track, then saw it was going to land like twenty five feet in front of him. He's like, oh god, a lot of words you can't <laughs> say on here, probably. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, and Jared Dickey just continued to deliver that night as well. Of course, having the walk off after that RBI triple two innings later. So, um, but yeah, Hunter Insley, Christian Scott seems like they're the top two center fielders for this Tennessee team. I think we'll see both of those start on the weekend. I don't think we'll see. We saw Inslee start all three games this weekend, but I think that was more because Kavar's tears is dealing with his hamstring. Yeah. Um, but I don't know for sure, but I, I just would think so. I don't think you'll see C. Scott or Hunter Inslee start all three games in a series because I think you'll have Griffin out and left, probably KT if he's healthy out and right, just because of how great the bat has been. Yeah, I mean, I think tears and Dryling both are kind of guys that – their bat has been good enough that if they're healthy, they're going to be involved. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to start every game. might be DH starts, but I think both those guys have earned a lot of opportunities with how good they've been at the plate, and I think it's almost in some ways going to work to Dylan Dryling's deficit that he's been so good pitch hitting this year. Like, he's been mm. very consistent in those big moments. Today, he has a two-RBI double that really broke the game open. Like, Tennessee had the lead. But it was kind of felt tight. Anyone's game to win. He has the huge hit. No, the, it was probably the biggest moment of the day. Yeah, uh, or outside of C Scott's C. Scott, diving C. Scott's catch, diving catch yeah. was huge too. Both those plays, I think, will probably be kind of forgotten about plays today because they weren't home runs, and but they were both massive and uh, driling how good he's been off the off the out of the dugout pinch hitting. I think someone's gonna work to his detriment in maybe some ways where Tennessee wants to have that option of him coming. Uh, off to out of the dugout to pinch it. And everything Tony Vitello has said about Dylan Dryling dating back to the offseason has come true. Is he's talked about how Dylan Dryling's well ahead of his years. The time is now. And then he's coming in in clutch pinch hit situations and delivering. And Tony Vitello's talking about, dude, his approach is not a vet of a first year player. Like, this is a. This is a vet at the plate right now, but based off the way he's approaching it. Yeah, I mean, it goes to the Jared Dickey quote yesterday, too, where. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. He. I can't. I think it was the. The win triple was the one it was before. Maybe it was uh, his last at bat where he walked it off. But, you know, Dylan Dryland got out and came, gave him a quick scouting report on the pitcher, and he was like, that's the best scouting report I've gotten in my time at Tennessee, and the kid's a freaking freshman. So it was, like you said, like Tony Vitello said, and like you said, it was a great point to bring it up. He's just a very intelligent hitter and is certainly kind of well ahead of his years at this point. Right. Yep, and I, I just don't I don't think we'll see Dryling in the outfield, per se. He's gotten a couple opportunities, hasn't really looked that great out in the outfield, but I think we'll see a lot of DH starts for Dylan Dryling moving forward. I, I don't think he started a game this weekend, but probably coming. Yeah, I, I think you're right, and it's almost like a little bit of a detriment to Tennessee that you kind of wish one of Tears and Dryling was righty and one of them was lefty because then it feels like you could get into a groove of – one DH versus right. The Christian Moore Blake Burke scenario last year. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And you kind of get that consistency, and everybody knows what to expect when they come to the ballpark every day. But obviously, both of them are lefties. Both of them are hitting at a really high level right now. Both of them are going to be big parts of Tennessee's team in the next few years, but certainly they're going to have roles on this team as well. Zane didn't, a switch, switch hitter, was coming into Sunday with 21 hits on the season, and only four had come when he was batting righty. 
So he, he had been a lot better as a left-handed bat, but then comes in today, Ryan, against the lefty and has an incredible day. Yeah. An incredible day. Starts it off with the two-run homer, hits a solo homer later on, five RBIs in total on the day, had a two-run single as well. I think I think it... You know, you mentioned how Zane Denton was one of the best bats of the weekend, but specifically today, I think that did a lot for Zane Denton moving forward. He got moved down to the nine hole, and man, he just raked. He did. I mean, you he mentioned it post game when we talked to him that like his confidence had been down from the right right handed side. He hadn't been hitting it well, and I think to me, what is most surprising about it is like you go back to his Alabama tenure. Not that like there was a massive, massive drop off where he was really bad hitting right as a right hander. He was better as a left hander uh, against right handed pitching. But the big thing was that he had a lot more power as a left handed hitter, and he had the two of his oh. now what five home runs on the season. I think he had three home runs today entering mm-hmm. or entering today's yep. game, and he has two of them from the right handed side. And that first one was an absolute moonshot that landed on the third deck of porches. Yeah, did it go over or was it on? I thought, I thought it, it went, went over. I thought it went over live, and then I was ruled overruled by the other people who saw oh, okay. it. They thought it hit the top deck. So, yeah, it was a monster. Uh, was it four ten? I believe four ten. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, yeah, big day for Zane Denton um, as he can continues to, you know, be in this Tennessee team and do well at third base. But Zane Denton's defense has been a little subpar, and I think we saw kind of a disciplinary action on Saturday. I don't know, but he got. Pinch hit for by uh, or pinch was it pinch run or pinch hit for by Jake Kendrow in like the sixth inning. Yeah, and you just don't see that against SEC competition when the game is close. Yeah, you don't. And Kendrow, yeah, I want to say it was Kendrow made pinch ran for someone else and then subbed in for him. Oh, okay. I think might have been what happened. And yeah, Kendrow is really good defensively. It feels like Denton's a little limited mobility. Like he, for the most part, it feels like he's pretty solid, but he just doesn't get to a ton of balls uh, necessarily and. Uh, but you're right. It, I hadn't thought about that. It does kind of feel like that could have been a disciplinary move. And uh, I think one thing more on a broad scale, and I've kind of thought this for a little bit while, a little while now, but when you look at Tennessee's lineup, I feel really good about, I'm going to call them the returning DHers. Okay. There weren't many returners on this team, but Jared Dickey, Blake Burke, Christian Moore, they all DH'd a lot last year. I think all three of those guys are really good. I think all three of those guys are stars. To me, the big swing in this lineup, I think the bottom of the lineup is going to be a little bit weak. You know, obviously there's a, a scale of how good they can be, but generally speaking, it's not going to be a great bottom of the lineup. To me, the middle guys, and not the middle guys in the lineup, but the middle pr- productivity hitter-wise, which is the three transfers, Zane Denton, Griffin Merritt, Malayuna, I think those three guys are kind of the X factors for how this offense will go. And the numbers didn't come out great for Ahuna on the weekend. He didn't really just didn't play great today. I thought he looked really good each of the first two games at the plate. Zane Denton was phenomenal. Griffin Merritt was bad this weekend. But those are the three guys that I think are going to swing more than anybody else. Obviously, everybody goes into this. But there's those three guys and how they play, I think, are going to kind of swing the potential of this Tennessee offense maybe more than any three guys. No, that's a good point because, like you said, you know what you have in the other guys and the – Opposing pitchers are pitching around Blake Burke and Christian Moore. They know that those are the top threats, and they know Dickey, what he can do. He's already shown it this season. So I think that's a good point is the three, three transfers are the X factors, especially Malia batting leadoff. Yeah, no, 100%. It just feels like those games where Malia is seeing the ball well and is on, it just feels like it gives a completely different feel to this lineup. Someone that can you can get guys on base before – you know what, three of the next four, three of the next five batters, you have those three returners who are really good. And then when you flip it, when you do get some success in the bottom of the lineup or 
you play more small ball and bunt some guys over at the bottom of the lineup, you have a guy right there at the top who can deliver. And it, it does kind of feel like, to me, a lot of this year he's kind of been on or he hasn't. Uh, and the numbers may not bear that out completely, but from an approach standpoint, it does feel that way. And uh, it, to me, it feels like he's getting better and better at the plate. No, he 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 has definitely improved. It was it was not pretty at the start, but it has definitely gotten better. And I mean, he and Christian Moore were the only two Vols last weekend in Missouri. I know Zane and Griffin each had a pretty insignificant home runs, you know, given the way the game was going. They had they left the yard, but Christian Moore and Maui Ahuna were the most consistent bats for Tennessee in Como. And then, as you said, Maui went two for five, I believe, on Friday. That was his best day. Yeah, he went two for five. Um, had two extra base hits, actually. Um, a triple and a double. So he, he was pretty good on, on Friday. But just Saturday and Sunday were forgettable days for the former Kansas Jayhawk. And then Griffin Merritt, you said he was bad this weekend. Numbers definitely reflect that. But, man, he, he had some hard yeah, he hit line drives that just went straight at people. Yeah, he did. That, that is a good point, especially the one yesterday. To, I don't know how the pitcher knocked it down did it hit his glove off his hand i think it hit his glove or did he take his glove off because it almost looks like i it think hit it hit his glove, glove off his hand off the hand yeah yeah or at least like a little bit and then he kind of shook it off uh to go run and make the make the throw over to over to first but you're right he did have some hard hit contacts he wasn't as bad as the numbers indicated and some of that is i think just kind of recency bias because there wasn't a whole lot good about his performance today Right. Well, he did make a really good catch out in left field, I will say, yeah, in no, the first a inning. Yeah, great leaping catch yeah. there at the wall. But at the plate, there wasn't a ton good uh, today. Man, if can you imagine if that would have been a home run, that Griffin Merritt catch? Like, just today? That had just been another bad start. Yeah, you've been down 2-0? I mean, for the third straight day. Am and, I am I wrong? Did they, uh, did, they not, did they give up a run in the first inning of all three games against Missouri, or was it the second in one of those? They didn't on Sunday. Okay. Beam, the I first, think, retired be, his first two. six. Okay, that beam was good to start, and then it like it was a f- it was a four spot in the third. Okay, yeah, and then they just blow it up. So five of the first six SEC games have given up runs in the first. Yeah, and A and M scored. Okay, can, if we take out the three run ninth inning they had today, which was just, I don't know, it was like the baseball gods were sending pain to us as beat writers <laughs> because that ninth inning took so freaking long, and it was just like you, Texas A and M could have come back. They loaded the bases and stuff, but it's like, man, like you just knew Tennessee was going to win the game, and it's like this just keeps dragging on and dragging on. Pitching change, pitching change, pitch. three pitchers in the ninth, Lindsey, yep. Kirby, and Sewell. Yep. And it's just like, when's this going to be over? But anyway, taking out that three-run ninth inning, Texas A&M had um, 14 runs on the weekend, seven on Saturday, four on Friday. That's 11, and then, well, three today. So, yeah, 14, and five were scored in the first inning. Yeah, so that's a good point. Out of twenty-seven innings, you know, uh, over a third of the runs he scored on the on the weekend happened in the first. Yeah, it, I don't know. I don't know what the thing. I don't know what's causing that. I don't know what the issue is for Tennessee's pitchers, but clearly there is a theme. And I mean, even if you go earlier in the season, that's with Dolander in particular, less with Beam and Burns. But it's just been a common theme. And I think you even said it earlier to like. You have to expect it at this point. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but you certainly can't be surprised if it happens. And credit to Tennessee this weekend, they weren't. Like, they took – they gave up a run in the first inning or or multiple runs in the first inning, one run or more in the first inning. That's how I should say that. Each of the three games, and, like, they weren't wavered by that. They weathered the storm. They responded 
early in both of you know Friday and Saturday's games, and and it didn't take him too long on Sunday. I guess Zane didn't homer there in the, the third inning was finally how he got it going. Yeah, and I think we've touched on it a little bit so far, but that was probably the most encouraging thing from Tennessee's weekend is the fact that they, you know, came back from that early adversity with offense of their own, and we just hadn't seen that quite from them this season against great competition. Well, Brian. Tennessee had their fun this weekend, but it's not about to be fun the next four weekends because <laughs> no. they have to go down to Baton Rouge next weekend on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, three-game series. Then they get Florida, Vandy, Arkansas, and Vandy. Florida and Vandy at home, Arkansas on the road. So what do you think the expectation should be for Tennessee baseball across these next 12 games? I think five and seven and... Those 12 SEC games would be pretty good. I think if you go 6-6, six and six, you should maybe throw a parade. I mean, it. Uh, it's if you do that, if you stay at 500, I think you set yourself up in a pretty good good spot to make a run at hosting a regional in the last four weeks, as you would expect with how hard these next four weeks is. The schedule gets a little bit softer down the stretch. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's going to be really hard. There's going to be, you know, the Arkansas and LSU game series on the road are going to be extremely, extremely difficult to win. I think just winning one game in both of those would not be like a massive failure. Vanderbilt's really the one series going into it where I'm like, I feel like Tennessee's the favorite. Even Florida at home, Florida, to me, is to me has been the most impressive team in the SEC. I was going to say as impressive as anybody, which would include LSU, but I, I think they've been better than LSU. I've been more impressed with them than LSU, and that's you're kind of nitpicking at that point because <laughs> LSU has been really good too. But uh, those are, you know, I wrote about it. Those are. If not the four best teams in the SEC, the three best teams in the SEC, and Vanderbilt's like five or six. So it's going to be extremely challenging, and you just kind of have to try to keep your head above water and and see what you can do after that. Yeah, Florida has beat Alabama two out of three. They lost the third one on a doubleheader, I believe. And then they swept Ole Miss this weekend. Then LSU. And Oxford, too. Oh, yeah, on the road. And then LSU won two out of three against A&M, lost the third one in a comeback. The Aggies came back. And then they beat Arkansas two of three this weekend, winning the doubleheader, both of those games. And the first game of the doubleheader was a run roll victory. The second game, nine run victory. So they dominated. Yeah, what was that final score on Sunday? Do you have it? Or I guess not Sunday, but game two yesterday. 14 to five. We said it in the press box. Like Arkansas got up 2-0 in the first game on Saturday. And they obviously won on Friday. And it's like, oh, watch, watch out for Arkansas. And then from that point on, the rest of the day, LSU outscored them twenty-six to five. <laughs> so good lord. Yeah, I mean LSU's lineup, they can do damage in a hurry. So it, some really really good teams. Tennessee's going to play next few weeks, and two of them on the road. So it's it's the SEC. I mean, what an example of how good the SEC is of Ole Miss, Mississippi State. Yeah, I mean they've won the last two national championships. They're combined zero and twelve to start the SEC play this year. It's like if you just slip a little bit in this conference, you're not slipping to the middle of the pack. You're slipping to the very bottom of the league. Yep, and we saw Mississippi State do that last year. They didn't make yeah. Hoover, right? No, and yeah. I'd be shocked <laughs> if they made it this year. They don't, they don't have the pitch. Like they don't have the pitching to turn this thing around. Yeah. Well, so with LSU coming up this weekend in the short term, are you looking more for Tennessee's pitching or Tennessee's lineup to, you know, be the X factor, if you will, in that series. Do you, do you think more more pressure is on Tennessee's hitters or Tennessee's pitching? I feel like it's got to be the pitching. Yeah, no, I think when you phrase it that way, it's pitching. The LSU lineup's so, so good, so it's like a little bit of a curve you're going to grade them on, like, slightly. But again, it's like what we said going into the year, or what I said earlier. Going into the year, it's supposed to be the best pitching staff, best starting pitching staff in the country. I'm shrugging because we're doing this on podcasts. This is really bad podcasting. 
what do you want? This is the best on best. Live up to it. Deliver in the moment. And this is an opportunity to do that. And LSU's pitching staff, while it isn't elite, it's still plenty good. And Tennessee's not going to be able to win a lot of games and shootouts, I don't think, next weekend. So the pitching staff needs to be good. It needs to be resilient and dialed because you're probably going to give up some runs, but you can't let that phase you. You have to kind of shake that off and, and pitch as well as you can and try to give yourself a chance to win a couple games. Well, hopefully they'll be entertaining games to watch, as good as these two teams are. Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPNU. Friday, 7 p.m. Eastern on SEC Network. So the first two games are televised, and then the final one there on 2 p.m. Eastern on Saturday will be SEC Network+. Plus. How about Tennessee baseball getting some televised games here in the last two weeks? It's always good to see. Um, you know, against A&M, two, and then LSU, two next weekend. And then against Florida, all three games will be televised. Yeah, they can thank uh, that the, the weather coming through Baton Rouge today because it was originally supposed to be Arkansas-LSU on ESPN today. And then since oh, it was okay. a doubleheader, Tennessee filled in the spot. But I was yeah. wondering why that happened. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I went crazy at first because I did like <laughs> our how to watch kind of preview with a lot of stuff yeah. on Thursday. And like I looked at the schedule and it was SEC Network Plus. And then I get to the park uh, Saturday and then it was like the game on Sundays on ESPN. What, what did I miss? But no, that was because of the doubleheader uh, down in Baton Rouge on Saturday. All right. Well, well RTI will keep you guys covered here in the next week leading up to that big series for Tennessee baseball, of course. Um, for Ryan Shepard, I'm Jack Foster. Before we go, Ryan, Miami basketball would just be Texas, 88-81. So now there are no one, two, or three seeds in the final four of the freaking NCAA tournament. How how freaking crazy is that? I mean, it's what we've been saying all year, isn't it? This is so dumb, though. Like, come on, man. I, okay, just quick thought. Do you like this? I know March Madness is all about craziness, and it's all about Cinderella's, and one to two a year is freaking great. I love it. But the fact that there's not a good team that is just in the Final Four here at the end. It always feels like there's at least a one or two seed there at the end, and this is just not the case. Do you enjoy this type of March Madness tournament more? Okay, this is. I'm glad you brought this up because I have one friend especially who, like, he hates the NCAA tournament. He thinks it's the dumbest way to decide, and, like, I get, like, I get that. But this year, I just vehemently disagree. All season, we've talked about it. There's no great teams. There's no great teams. It's everybody's pretty even. You got 20 teams. Everybody's pretty even. I don't care if we don't have any big names in the in the Final Four. Like, the teams, no one's been great all year. So why should I want some team that hasn't been great all season, but they were just the best, to be there just to be there? That's how I feel about it. Okay. Like, I, I in some ways, I do get that argument, and there are years where, like, I agree with that, where you get to the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight, and you, like, don't have that many good games because you have a lot of Cinderella's, but... To me, there wasn't really that many Cinderella's outside of Princeton this year. You just have a lot of teams. You, you would know. consider FAU a Cinderella? No. Why not? They're Conference USA, and they're in the Final Four. They are they were a nine seed, and they went 33-3. Went and three. And Conference USA is good. <laughs> Conference USA is good. North Texas is good. UAB is good. Charlotte's solid. Like, it's a good conference. It, it has been all year. Okay. They're top 25 in Ken Palm. Like, I, I just like, and we got it a couple of times, obviously, with Arizona and stuff, with the Arizona game, but I like when there's a Cinderella and you have a really good team to root against. Now, everybody's, like, free-rolling. So there's no team that you can be like, man, I hope they knock off these guys. You know, see what I'm saying? Yeah, I see what you're saying, but to me, when there's not a Cinderella left, like, oh my, why don't, what are we talking about? I guess Knocking we just disagree off. that there's no Cinderellas left because I think FAU is definitely a Cinderella. And who the... SDSU in Miami? Like, come on. No one had that. No one saw that coming. You can maybe see UConn. They're awesome. And 
a four seed was probably a little too low for them. And they could have beaten Marquette to and then gone and won the Big East. That was a close game. Yeah. But I don't know. I think, I think UConn wins it all, though. Yeah, no, they're definitely playing the best. I would definitely agree with that. And, yeah, SDSU, I, I would say I would, I'm surprised, especially because, obviously, they had Alabama in their path. It would have been uh, hard to see them uh, win that game. But, and not, uh, you know, I don't want to act like I, had, I picked Miami to go to the Final Four or anything because I didn't. I had them losing pretty early. I, I want to say, I don't know, Sweet 16 or maybe round of 32. But they have really good guard play. Like, they made the Sweet 16 last year. They made the Elite Eight last year. Uh, yeah. And they returned, mm-hmm. and they returned like, Two of those three main guards, and they got the uh, Nigel Pack, who's really good from Kansas State and transfer portal. Like we talk all the time about guard play winning in March. Now, Grant, <laughs> the second part of that is guard play and defense, and Miami doesn't typically play a whole lot of defense. But we're talking about guard play winning in March. Miami has a ton of it, and they have a ton of guys that have played in the NCAA tournament. So uh, I don't, and they, you know, they were solid all season. So like it didn't feel like. Let's think about it. Marquette, they were they were two seed, right? Right. Marquette and Miami, like I didn't feel like those teams were that much different in the regular season. Marquette was better. That's why they were a two seed, but like there wasn't some huge gap. If you told me Marquette and Miami were playing and okay, they would never play in the first round of the NCAA tournament. They blanket sweet 16 matchup before I saw the bracket Marquette Miami. I'm like, okay, Marquette's going to be favored by two points. Okay. Everybody's even, and I'm talking way too much about it at this point, but there's your NCAA tournament. thoughts. <laughs> So, but, okay, so do you have UConn winning now of those Final Four? Yeah, I mean, that would be my pick, but I'm not going to be surprised if literally any of these teams win it. <laughs> if FAU wins it, that's just going to be insane. It would be insane. But they also gross. dropped the greatest hype video of all time a month ago, and we should have known it was coming then. That was the Seinfeld thing, right? Yeah. And, of course, John Rothstein has taken full advantage <laughs> of that. Shocking. Just tweet Seinfeld gifts and videos constantly as FAU makes this run, and I like his dusty mate. Dusty, we sleep in May. That's his. That's his thing for dusty mate. Very, very creative for that. That is. But yeah, Final Four will be fun to watch next weekend, of course. Um, but we got college baseball next weekend as well, Thursday through Saturday for Tennessee baseball. That'll do it for this edition of the Rocket Tap Insider Press Pass Special Edition Podcast. For Ryan Shepard, I'm Jack Foster. We'll catch you guys later. Be sure and follow us at Rocket Tap Insider on all your social platforms. Keep up with all our work at RocketTapInsider.com. Ryan is at rshump00, that is S-C-H-U-M-P. And I'm at Jack Foster Media. And Ryan, that'll do it for today. Until next time, I'll see you, brother. Sounds great.